This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio, on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly, and we're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Alan Burdick discusses his new book, Why Time Flies, a mostly scientific investigation. Then PW Children's Reviews Editor John Sellers recaps the Newberry, Caldecott, and Prince Awards. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. So on the fiction list, we have a new number one on hardcover fiction. And uh, naturally, it's by James Patterson, who always goes up to the top of the list. Um, In this case, it's co-written with Candace Fox. And it's the start of a new series because James Patterson fans didn't have enough to keep up with. (laughs) So this one's called Never Never. It's the first Detective Harriet Blue book. Um, She's in Sydney, Australia. She's a sex crimes detective in the Sydney Police Department. And uh, in this one, it starts off with a bang. She's called into her boss's office and is told her brother is the prime suspect in the murders of three women. And so she's transferred away to avoid any semblance of conflict Mm -hmm. and uh, also to avoid the media exposure. But uh, in that case, she gets involved in a missing person's case and uh, everything rapidly spirals. So no surprise, number one with a bullet, 27,000 copies sold right out of the gate. And uh, then down at number seven, we have Fever Song by Karen Marie Moaning. And this is the last book in the series, uh, the last book in her Fever series, uh, which has reached nine books. Um, This is an, an urban fantasy series of a sort. There are black holes over Dublin and a book uh, that a, a sentient book of unthinkable evil has possessed a woman who uh, you know, is channeling its power in dangerous, terrible ways. Um, so lots of uh, big apocalyptic showdown moments uh, happening in there. And that's at number seven. And uh, before we swing into the hardcover nonfiction, I wanted to also note on the trade paperback list, this is what we were looking for last week right. and didn't see. Uh, at number 13 is the March trilogy slipcase set by John Lewis et al. And um, we were looking for the boost that that had gotten uh, from Congressman Lewis being in the news and uh, there it was. Uh, we were hearing lots of things about people rushing out to, to buy it. his book and uh, I, I hear that he's also going to be figuring prominently in our conversation with John Sellers about awards given out at ALA. So I expect those sales are going to keep rolling in for him. Oh, it all sounds great. And uh, what's happening in hardcover nonfiction? Well, uh, we've got a uh, slow-growing trend here. Maybe it's not so slow-growing. It's uh, The Little Book of Huga, Danish Secrets to Happy Living. And Huga is spelled H 
H-Y-G-G-E, in case you've seen these books on the shelves and were wondering exactly how to pronounce it. Back in October, we did a, uh, a piece called It's Hip to Be Huga, New Books on 2017's Coziest Trend. And there's about a half dozen books uh, being published this season, cookbooks, lifestyle books, homestyle books, all on this uh, Scandinavian idea of comfort. So that's our highest debut at number 12. And then we have The Tears We Cannot Stop, A Sermon to White America by Michael Eric Dyson. That's at number 15. And then finally, at which we don't have a review of, we do have at number 23, Audacity, How Barack Obama Defied His Critics and Transformed America by Jonathan Chait, who's a, uh, a columnist for New York Magazine. And here we say he presents a concise but well-reasoned analysis of President Obama's record in office that could persuade open-minded readers that he succeeded in reshaping, quote, the economy, healthcare, energy, finance, and education in quantifiable ways, end quote. And that's what we have on our uh, nonfiction list. So not much happening. No. But uh, we will continue to keep an eye and uh, see when it does. And maybe some more books on comfort. Oh, that would be lovely. Yeah. You know, I thought yeah. all this time I was just wearing cozy sweaters, like, because I like them. <laughs> I didn't realize I was part of a trend. Oh, you are. Well, that's very exciting to know. <laughs> I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Alan Burdick tells us how and why we perceive time. We'll be right back. Hi, my name is Jeff Howe. I'm the co-author of the book Whiplash, How to Survive Our Faster Future. And you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got Alan Burdick on the line. His new book is Why Time Flies, a mostly scientific investigation. Hi, Alan. I'm so glad you could join us. Hi. It's great to be here. Thank you. So um, here's, a, here's a great softball, easy question for you. Tell us about our perception of time. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, when I started this book, which was a long time ago, I kind of thought like, oh, this is pretty, this is going to be kind of an easy thing to tackle. I don't know why I thought that. And, and I started going around and um, asking scientists, you know, so like, what is time? And everybody turned it around on me and asked, well, what do you mean by time? And pretty quickly I realized that, you know, kind of what we talk about is time is actually a lot of different things. There's, uh, you know, your understanding of what time it is right now, but also your perception of before and after and your perception of past and present and future and your, you know, sense that there is some kind of a now that you inhabit. Your perception of time is, is this entire range of things. Um, and they they come online uh, at, at, at different times. You know, I mean, they come online gradually as you as you get older. You aren't none of us are born with a complete perception of time in any sense. So I want to ask you a little bit about how we perceive time as we get uh, older or uh, you know, as, as infants. But I, 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 I love the uh, subtitle, A Mostly Scientific Investigation. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. What's, what's the science and what isn't? What's the science and what's the mostly? Yeah, <laughs> what's um, the mostly, exactly. Uh, the, the science is uh, me really delving into the question of, you know, I mean, I've, I've read a fair amount about space-time over the years. I mean, not like I could actually explain it uh, after all that, but, you know, I have begun to kind of wonder what's the difference between space-time out there and what actually happens in my daily life and, you know, my sense that the 
stoplight is lasting too long or, or whatever. You know, like what's, what, what is timing here? You know, I just started going around and, and talking to biologists and psychologists and neuroscientists to try to get some grip on, you know, what this thing is that we call time. But at the same time, uh, the book really kind of spans my introduction to parenthood. I started this book just a few weeks before my kids, two uh, twin boys, were born, and they're now 10. Um, and there's, you know, I, I spent a lot of that time, I have to say, really coming to grips with the fact that, um, well, I, I would say, I guess I, I spent a lot of that time, you know, w- realizing that so much of parenthood, so much of becoming a, a kid um, is your gradual introduction to what time is in its many forms. You know, it's like not just what time it is, but like, what do you mean, wait? five minutes what's that um you know hurry up um all these all these phrases that are just so common in our in our daily conversation that mean nothing to a kid until until you explain it to them so i've i've got a one-year-old and uh this is all of deep personal interest to me because um like my kid's only just starting to get linearity like the idea of when you're turning a page in a book, there's a before page and an after page. And um, that feels to me like like one of the sort of prerequisite concepts to the idea of linear time of I will go and then I will come back. Yeah. And, and you know, it's you kind of think it's intuitive, like, a, of course. Um, but that that experience of before and after is actually a lot more plastic than you might think. I mean, I, I did this cool experiment in the laboratory of David Eagleman, a, uh, a neuroscientist who's now at Stanford. And, and the setup was basically, I'm in front of a computer screen and I've got a mouse in my hand and I'm moving a cursor on the screen and it, there's like a, a dot that lights up on a different part of the screen. Lights up, I move my cursor to it, click, and immediately the dot moves somewhere else. And then I move over there and I click, right? So it's like click, move, click, move. Mm-hmm. Well, so... In the setup to the experiment, there's actually a 100 millisecond delay between the click and the movement. And it turns out that the brain can actually absorb um, a tenth of a second, a 100 millisecond delay between an action and its consequence without you actually noticing the delay. So the setup for the, for the experiment is I get used to this 100 millisecond delay and I don't notice it. You know, I mean, that's a lot of time. And then suddenly... He removes the delay. So there's no delay. I'm doing it instantly. And the weird thing is, it suddenly feels like the cursor is moving before I've clicked it. Wow. You know, the, the effect is coming before the cause. And it's so distinct that I, you know, I remember watching, you know, watching my cursor move on the screen and thinking, okay, I'm not going to click it now. I'm not going to click it. I was going to like, I was going to like flex with the experiment and you, I couldn't do it. It was really weird. So you were you were but trying to fake a, out the computer, and of course you you can't. Right, and and that's I mean just to kind of circle back that that is, um, you know that's a temporal order problem. You know I've I've got the order backward. So the idea is that your brain turns uh, your perception of a tenth of a second into zero time, and so less than that must be negative time. Exactly, and and you know it's like your brain is like credit grabby it wants to take credit 
for stuff that you actively do. You know, you press a button and something happens. You must have caused it. Right. Uh, you must. You must have caused it. So I'm gonna. I'm gonna like jam those things together in time uh, and make it seem like it happened at the same time, just to you know make things easier for you, conscious person. <laughs> so, so as we're talking about the brain, um, I, you talk about how time is active or gets activated in different parts of the brain. Yeah. So there are, as I, I said, sort of all these experiences that go into what we would call our perception of time. And, you know, maybe the most basic one, yeah, um, our circadian rhythms. And that, that's the one aspect of time that we're all born with. And what that is, basically, is that in each of our cells, uh, in our organs, we have essentially a clock. It's a clock born out, out of kind of genetic processes going on in the nucleus of the cell, such that it beats out a 24-hour rhythm. And, you know, it's like your liver works on a 24-hour cycle and your kidneys work on a 24-hour cycle, and which means they're, you know, active at some times of the day and less active at another time of the day. And if you just kind of chart that activity, it's a 24-hour cycle. So like like your facial hair grows faster in the afternoon than it does in the middle of the night, which is why men tend to get 5 o'clock in the afternoon shadow and not 5 o'clock in the morning shadow. You know, and we've got all these cells, uh, all these clocks kind of floating around in us, and we have a master clock, a, a, a literally a, a cluster of about 20,000 neurons in the brain, um, and it takes input from daylight, and it takes that information and sends it out to all these clocks to basically let them know what time it is um, so that all these clocks can kind of coordinate together. Otherwise, you know, you basically get jet lag. Um, so that's one kind of time. But then there's the kind of time that is you know, your sense of duration, you know, it's like you're sitting at the stoplight and it seems to be taking longer than it did yesterday. Not that you're sitting there timing it consciously, but somewhere in your brain, you, you really seem to be, and you seem to sense that there's some kind of violation of, of the timing that you've come to expect. You know, that's another sort of timing. And, and neuroscientists have been trying really hard for the last 20 or 30 years to locate that timer, if you will, in the brain, and it turns out it's not, you know, it's not like a clock like you have in your computer. It's not super local. It's it's a distributed process across, you know, really most of the neurons in your brain. Um, and even then, it, it, it's not exactly clear how that process works, although it's very clear that there is a timer in there. Wow. So um, that's that's pretty wild stuff. The idea that uh, that's not a centralized thing is so different from how we think about the clocks that we look at, that we, we think of time pieces of timekeepers as being really pretty simple mechanisms, but it sounds like internally they're not. Uh, they really are not. And, and, you know, it's interesting in, in the, in the kind of neurobiology literature and the clinical literature, you know, you find all kinds of examples of people who've suffered from a stroke or they've had some kind of brain damage and maybe their sense of time is speed it up or it's slowed down or it's distorted in some way, but you never find anybody who has zero sense of timing, which just indicates that, you know, it, it is a distributed process. You know, it's not, it's not kind of local to one brain region, um, which A, is, is a good thing because A, it's, you know, you don't want to lose that clock. 
and B, you know, it, it indicates just how critical timing is to the organism. And I mean, and by the way, you know, it's not like we are the only animal that have this. Dogs, cats, pigeons, pretty much every um, sort of every vertebrate animal, probably every invertebrate animal has some degree of timing. I mean, you can train a dog to expect food after, you know, 30 seconds or 10 minutes. And that's because it can time things. And um, I'm thinking now of like the seven-year cicadas or whatever. Some of those uh, time scales are very long. Yeah, that is that is probably that's probably a genetic thing. Mm. Um, it's it's not a it's not a kind of conscious or what you might call like a cerebral or psychological process. Sure. Um, I mean, it's not it's not a learned thing. Whereas you know, with rats and pigeons and dogs, um, you know, they learn what five minutes is. They learn what 10 minutes is because they learn that there's a treat waiting, you know, at the end of it. And they learn that really fast. So you had mentioned early on about the, uh, you, you were uh, giving us the analogy of, of your kids and the sense of time, you know, hurry up. What, what kind of, what is the time, what is the sense of time that, uh, say, babies experience or even maybe other animals? How do they experience the passage of time? Well, so we'll talk about babies first because animals generally are kind of a different a, a different case. But um, I mean, babies are super interesting. I, I spent a lot of time in the lab of a guy named David Lepkowitz, uh, who's a developmental psychologist now at Northeastern University. And you know what he basically does is study babies. I mean, like as young as like weeks old up to you know ten or twelve months old. Um, and he, he tries to understand what what time and timing is to them. And one of the cool things he found out is like, you know, with us, with grownups, like if you're watching TV and suddenly like the sound gets out of sync with the movement of the lips, you know, if, if that's off by about 80, second, uh, 80 milliseconds, um, you know, less than a tenth of a second, we notice it. But a baby, you can put those things out of sync by as much as two-thirds of a second, um, which is a really long time, and they don't notice it. Hmm. Um, it they, they have a very forgiving um, – they have a very forgiving – it's not so much a sense of time, but it's, it's a sense of synchrony, right? It's, it's, a, it's this process of, of the brain trying to figure out what things go together in time, right? I see some lips. I hear a sound. Do those things belong together or not? And uh, the baby's brain is, is, you know, willing to basically be pretty, pretty lax with what counts as now and things belonging together um, than, than the adult brain is. We're going to take a quick break in some measurement of time, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. 
Welcome back. We're talking with Alan Burdick, author of Why Time Flies. Um, so you talk about time also as an illusion of permanence uh, and uh, say that sometimes that leads to overlooking long-term consequences. Give us a, an example of this. Illusion of permanence. Did I say that? <laughs> <laughs> it's, a great, it's a great phrase. I assume we got it from you. Oh, my God. Um, I have no idea what that means. Well, as you gotta ask me a different question. Sure, <laughs> yeah, uh, but the the idea the idea that um, what's happening now is going to keep on happening, uh, and that the the idea that the now sort of extends into the future in a way that's maybe not so realistic. Um, well, uh, you, maybe what you're talking about is part of. I mean, this gets this is kind of where perception of time really kind of turns into a discussion of consciousness. I, I kept trying to steer away from consciousness in the book, but it, it was sort of inevitable. Um, you know, part, part of what makes us adults is our understanding that we have a self, you know, that the person that I was last week or a year or two ago uh, is the same person now, and, and I'm going to be me next week and 50 years from now, even even if circumstances change. But kids don't really have that. I mean, they certainly aren't born into the world with that. And it, it really isn't until, like, age three or four that they begin to understand that the memories that they're having actually belong to them and they don't belong to somebody else. So, you know... So it's possible that you could tell a three-year-old, hey, I went to the, uh, to the Empire State Building today, and he or she will receive that and remember that as if he or she had gone to the Empire State Building himself. So, you know, any, anything that it remembers, it assumes is a memory that belongs to itself. Um, but only kind of gradually does it begin to parse out, you know, other people's memories from its own memories. And at that point, once it kind of claims its own memories, the child enters what we would call a, a, a state of self, um, and and the understanding that that self is is basically permanent. You know, it will it will span all time. Wow! I'm just taking a moment to to wrap my head around that. Does that um, is is sort of the vestige of that? What can make it? easy sometimes for people, even in adulthood, to remember things that didn't happen uh, or to uh, you know, read about something and feel like it happened to them? Is that is that the same mechanism at work or is that going beyond your field? Yeah, it's a little beyond my field, but it's not unrelated. I mean, it, it is, you know, it, it is part of the mystery of how exactly memory works um, and, you know, the, the degree to which, you know, as, as we know, memory is both fallible and, and can be altered. Um, you know, you, a, a, a trained scientist can basically implant false memories um, in a person about how they, you know, they went to the mall and they saw so-and-so or they bought such and such, even though that never actually happened. And, and the person can, can you know, a day later remember it as if that was a memory that they had as a kid. And um, you mentioned about the uh, circadian rhythms, and, uh, and you talked about uh, how they worked in humans. And what about other animals? Uh, it's um, circadian rhythms are they've been around probably as long as life has been around. I mean, there is, I don't think there's really an organism that doesn't obey a circadian rhythm. 
Um, you know, if you take a, a certain kind of a flowering plant, you know, that flowers at sunrise and, and closes up at sundown, put it in a closet in the dark for two weeks, and it will continue to um, it'll continue to bloom as if you know it knows exactly when sunrise is and sunset is. Not because it turns out it's it's being triggered by light, but because it has this internal clock. That's interesting because I was thinking about um, stories I've heard of people who went you know, down into caves away from sunlight for weeks or months at a time, um, and their sleep cycles become very distorted. They might you know sleep for twenty hours at a time and then um, be awake for you know more than twenty five. So did you did you look into phenomena like that, and to what extent is this innate? Yeah, well, the, I mean, circadian rhythms have, have been known to exist in animals and plants for a couple of hundred years. Um, but it wasn't really until like the 1950s or so that they were discovered in humans. And, and that was in part by, you know, experiments just like you described by, you know, sending people to go live in underground bunkers and caves for, you know, two weeks or three weeks at a time. And you know, monitoring their their body temperature over a twenty four hour period, and monitoring their sleep cycles, and it became clear that you know, even removed from the presence of daylight or even from each other, you know, that, that people you know pick out a a circadian rhythm, certainly as as expressed in um, body temperature. That's probably the best indicator of where you add in your where you're at in your daily circadian cycle, but. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I uh, spend some time in the book writing about this French cave explorer um, who, in the 60s, put himself in a cave um, for, for a period of weeks just to kind of see what would happen to him. Uh, and he did it again in the 70s in a cave in, uh, in Texas and stayed down there for almost six months. And um, he, he learned a lot about his circadian cycle, but his sleep cycle went totally nuts. Mm-hmm. And he would sleep sometimes, you know, for 40 hours at a stretch um, and other times for 20 hours at a stretch. And um, no, he, I'm sorry, he, he didn't he didn't sleep for 40 hours, but his uh, his perceived day between, you know, waking up and the next time he woke up right. took 40 hours. He, he has no clock, so he has no idea what time it is. And when he came out, um, he actually thought that. Uh, they were taking him out too early. He hadn't realized how much time had actually passed above ground and was uh, surprised when they came, you know, when when they said it was time to leave. He was also also pretty happy because he was going nuts down there. <laughs> oh, I can imagine. Wow. <laughs> so, um, so, so this leads us to the idea of time as a, as a social construct, um, that the, the passage of time is something that in, in some sense we all have to agree upon, um, and you know, in, in that in that example, the people coming to get him said, "No, your perception of time is wrong." And he said, "Okay, that's fine. I'll go by what your perception of time is." So how how does that how does that work, and why has it become so important to to societies all over the world? Um, I, I think in I think it's probably always been important to us, even even in the absence of the kinds of clocks that we we know now. Um, but, but I mean, it manifests itself both mechanically and, and, and very kind of biologically in, 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 in these sort of two senses. I mean, you know, you have a watch, I have a watch, 
people around the world that we know have clocks. And, and those clocks, you know, these days all agree with each other because they're all speaking to the same satellites and they're all coordinating. Um, so we are, you know, that enables us to, to coordinate our, our schedules and say, you know, hey, let's talk it. 2.15, and then I know, you know, what 2.15 means, even if I'm in another time zone. Um, but, you know, we, we actually do that kind of thing interpersonally all the time through the, the perceptions of time that, that we manifest. So, like, um, well, think of it this way. Like, if, if the two of us are sitting in a room together talking and you see me smile, the difference between me smiling genuinely and me giving you a fake smile is just a matter of milliseconds. Hmm. But your sense of timing is uh, is acute and acute enough to pick up that difference. And if it's not, then you're missing out on some serious social cues. And you know, studies show that if we're sitting together, you know, if you smile, I'll smile. If you pick up your fork, I'll pick up my fork too. And and we we synchronize our our gestures, um, even without noticing it. So you know if if Mark is watching us have a having this conversation, he can basically tell again, not even consciously, he can tell how well we're getting along mm. by by kind of intuiting how kind of synchronized we are in time, uh, physically. Um, so. You know, our, our ability, again, to kind of move in and out of each other's times and, and sort of understand each other's, um, I don't know what the word for it is, but, you know, to, to, to kind of move in and out of each other's bodies almost and, and appreciate each other's sense of time is just integral to the to the social process. It's, it's really part of what makes us such a successful social species. So you obviously went really far afield from where you started out. You said it took you 10 years um, to put this book together. It's a long time. Um, what was the central idea that you started with, and uh, and how has it sort of transformed throughout this process? Well, I, I guess I kind of started out from kind of an antagonistic <laughs> perspective. Like, I didn't want to wear a watch, at, you know, at that time in my life, and I kind of felt like, Time was this sort of external thing that was being imposed on me and that I had some kind of a choice about whether I did or did not, you know, want it on me or, hmm. you know, want to belong to this thing called time. Um, and, you know, as I, as, I, as I dived into the book and sort of talked to all these people and processed all of it, I began to realize that, that time isn't something, you know, it's not something that we really create um, to, I mean, we, you know, yes, we have clocks that we've invented, but time is in us. It's, it really is in ourselves. Um, you know, we know where it is and how it works and it's bubbling up out of us all the time. I mean, you know, if, if you're, each of your cells is a clock, that clock has to talk to the other clocks and you as a whole, I as a whole, I am an assemblage of clocks. I'm like a symphony. And, you know, the two of us together, the three of us, uh, us in a crowd, we, we are all then kind of clocks trying to synchronize with one another. Um, so I just began to see that it's, A, it's not something you, you can escape, or B, it's really something to embrace. 
Um, and I guess I, it, it all made it a little bit easier to deal with, you know, the other inescapable fact of time, which is that it moves in one direction, you know, that it moves in one direction and eventually comes to an end. (laughs) (laughs) Your previous book was out of Eden, an odyssey of ecological invasion. Um, tell us a little bit about that. And did that book at all have any bearing on this one? Yeah, that was a book, um, it was about invasive species, different kinds of plants and insects and animals uh, that are, you know, not native to the ecosystem that they're moving into and, and what happens uh, as a result. And, and so it got me, you know, thinking about ecosystems and ecology and evolution and, and, and these timescales over which ecosystems form, you know, thousands, tens of thousands, millions of years and I just, you know, it, it just made me realize the extent to which, you know, those times, those time scales are so hard to wrap your head around, in part because we are viewing them as humans through like an 80 or a 90 year window that is our lifespan. So, you know, it, it, it's just, it's really hard to conceive how evolution works if, if you can't really grasp the time scale. Um, and so that is part of what got me thinking about, you know, A, the perception of time and, you know, how time kind of works in different systems, you know, ecosystems down to individuals. And again, like what, you know, I'd read about space time, but it never really seemed like that had very much to do with the world that we live in day to day. And, and that seemed to involve a different kind of time. And I, and I wanted to know what is that and where does that come from and how does that work and, you know, what do we know about it? And previously you were an editor at The New Yorker. Now you're a staff writer there. How has your work as an editor shaped your writing? Um, I, it's, <laughs> um, you know, in some ways for me, like editing is like doing a crossword puzzle. Um, it, it's, it's, it's easier than dealing with my own writing. And, and, you know, and, and, and when I write, I really have to turn the editor off. Mm. Um, uh, but for me, editing is like solving a puzzle. And I know that, you know, there are probably three or four different ways to solve it. Um, but you know, I, I have faith that I can, I can kind of figure out a reasonable order for things to go. When I'm writing, it's totally different. It's like you're, instead of, you know, putting the jigsaw puzzle together, it's like you're making the pieces and you're like snipping out, you know, their, their shapes and, and you don't even necessarily know like what this puzzle is adding up to. All you kind of know is, you know, piece to piece to piece and, and just kind of wondering like, does this stick to this thing? Um, and it's really a long time before my, you know, editing brain can can really have anything to do with that process but i i can uh i can hear as we've been talking your commitment to precision how so well, uh just you yeah i love how carefully you've been choosing your words through the interview to make sure that you're conveying what you want to convey and that uh, to me that feels like sort of an overlap between the editor self and the writer self yeah i mean i think you know i think uh, you, you can't kind of go into this business as a editor or a writer or, you know, in, into the book world without at some level caring about the words. I mean, I love, I love information and, um, 
you know, I, I, I've sort of always thought of myself as a nonfiction writer. I just, but the fiction brain is so foreign to me. I, it's, it's magic. I don't know how people do it. Um, I need nonfiction to hang on to. Um, but I also just love the craft of it, you know, and, and moving sentence to sentence and the rhythm of the sentences together and, um, all of that. I, I just, I love that process. We've been talking with Alan Burdick, and you can find his book, Why Time Flies, in stores right now for our perception of now. Alan, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to be here. Thanks so much. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Children's Reviews editor John Sellers talks about the awards given at ALA. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Lodra Rinsler, the author of Love Hurts, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors, and today PW Children's Reviews editor John Sellers is here to tell us all about the awards just given out at the ALA conference. Hello, John. Hi, how's it going? Good, good. So this sounds like it's been a pretty, uh, as you were just saying, a pretty uh, great group of uh, uh, of awards given out. Yeah, you know, this is. I feel like this is sort of like Christmas in the children's book world. Uh, it arrives, uh, you know, slightly after the holidays, and uh, certainly one of the biggest days and some of the biggest awards that we we see all year long. Um, they're always delivered uh, this time of year at the ALA, the American Library Association's uh, midwinter meeting. Uh, it's a big part of that event, which was uh, this past weekend and into the early part of this week in Atlanta this year. So um, tell us all about the winners, because yeah, that's what we're here for. You said the, the big awards are the Newberry, the Caldecott, and the Prince. Right. So the Newberry and the Caldecott are you know among the oldest uh, awards in um, children's literature. Uh, the Prince is sort of a relative newcomer um, that really focuses on um, teen, uh, young adult fiction. As far as the Newberry Medal, that that is given uh, out to the what, what's considered the most outstanding uh, contribution in children's literature. And this year, it went to a fantasy novel, a middle grade novel, uh, "The Girl Who Drank the Moon" by Kelly Barnhill. Mm. Um, it's, I want to say it's maybe her fourth book thereabouts. Um, we've you know loved her books over the years. Gotten, she's as not even just PW. She's racked up a lot of accolades in terms of you know very strong reviews for her work. Um, this is a, a lovely lovely story about um, sort of um, magic and deception and. And sort of, sort of recognizing that uh, the world as you see it may not be the way it truly is, I guess, and mm-hmm. um, kind of coming to terms when everything you thought you knew has been upended mm-hmm. um, in a fantasy context. Um, so that was a lovely pick, um, a book that had gotten a lot of attention uh, this past year, or at least a lot of very positive reviews. Um, and there were some uh, Newbery Honor books as well. Um, Freedom Over Me, Eleven Slaves, Their Lives, and Dreams Brought to Life uh, by Ashley Bryan. Um, that's a picture book. Basically, he, he has sort of imagined stories and drawn portraits um, using as a basis uh, historical documents about right. uh, slaves who were uh, and their ownership and looking at those deeds and then sort of extrapolating from that these sort of imagined portraits of their of their daily lives. And that was a book that got recognized by a couple of committees uh, on, back on Monday. So he, he had a pretty good uh, year with that book, I yeah. guess. Yep. Um, and there were a couple other Newbery Honor books that I can mention briefly. Uh, one, um, they're actually both from the same imprint and the same editor over at Dutton, which is kind of neat. One is The Inquisitor's Tale by Adam Gidwitz, and the other is Wolf Hollow uh, by Lauren Walk. So... Good year for that house and that yeah. imprint. Um, yeah, definitely. Both, both excellent books. And what's the imprint? Uh, Dutton, Dutton, which okay, is part of Penguin. Great. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so that was the Newberry this year. 
And if, I guess if I could move on to the Caldecott briefly, uh, mm-hmm. the, the Caldecott is uh, an award uh, given for the most distinguished American picture book for children. And uh, this year, the award went to Radiant Child, the story of young artist Jean-Michel Basquiat mm. um, by uh, Jafaka Steptoe. And so that was the winner this year. Um, it's a picture book. It's a, um, a look at the life of, of, of Basquiat and his... I would say it, it, it focuses more on the uh, his sort of his rise. Uh, it, it sort of uh, doesn't get too much into uh, the end of his life, uh, right. his short life, but it just talks about his sort of his his upbringing and how he looked at the world, and then brought that into his art. And the artwork in the book itself is, is really pretty spectacular. And I believe that the uh, that Mr. Steptoe actually um, sort of used found materials kind of gathered throughout Brooklyn as a basis of the art he was um, for these sort of collage style images he was putting together hmm. and um, trying to nod to, to Basquiat's work but still ma- and, and reflect it but also not just copy it or maybe right. get, make it his own in the process um, so that was the, the winner of the Caldecott this year and there were four uh, Caldecott honors if I can go briefly um, yeah. Leave Me Alone uh, by Vera Brosgall Freedom in Congo Square which was illustrated by R. Gregory Christie do is talk uh, by Carson Ellis, and they all saw a cat, uh, which is by Brendan Wenzel. So these are all you know, lovely picture books. A couple of um, them were on our, uh, in fact, three of these five honors and awards were on our uh, our own best books list uh, this past year. So that was it's always nice Very to see a little, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> a little overlap there. <laughs> so again, that was the, the Newberry and the Caldecott. And then we've got one more. Yeah, so we have the the Prince, and uh, you know this was a very very good ALA awards for uh, Representative John Lewis. Um, March Book Three, which is the third book in a graphic novel trilogy he has written with uh, Andrew Aiden and illustrated by Nate Powell. Um, this is the third in that trilogy, and it won the Prince as well as three other awards. Uh, wow! You know, over the course of that day, it also last fall won the National Book Award for Young People's Literature. Right. So it's a, been a really big thing. And one thing that I noticed on Monday when I was furiously uh, live tweeting these for uh, PW and paying attention to. You know, the immediate reactions on online is that it's worth remembering that these committees work separately, independently, and secretly all year long. The different groups of librarians serving, you know, on on the various committees for these awards. You know, so it's, it's sort of somewhat remarkable to see when, that similar conclusions were reached by uh, different committees, and then the sort of to have one book out of all the thousands of children's books honored by several committees is, is pretty remarkable. So in addition to winning the uh, the Prince, March Book 3 also received um, uh, the Cybert Award, mm-hmm. uh, which is a, sort of uh, for an informational, uh, distinguished informational book is the idea there. And then similarly, the Yalsa Award for Excellence in Nonfiction, so two nonfiction um, awards for it. And finally, uh, it picked up an award, for the Coretta Scott King Author Award as well. Um, and, and the Credit Scott King Awards are specifically directed to sort of um, books that by and about the African-American experience. And interestingly, um, a couple of the other books I mentioned, Freedom Over Me by Ashley Bryan and um, Freedom, Freedom in Congo Square um, also picked up sort of honors from those committees. And I know that sometimes people worry that like the big committees, the Newberry and the Caldecott, I mean, these these awards across the board are all huge, huge honors. But there sometimes is a worry that when you have an award like the CSK Awards or the mm-hmm. Pearl Bell Prey for books about the Latino experience, that sometimes these big committees are going to not. They'll think, you know, those committees they'll they'll probably 
give this book an honor and we, maybe we'll do something else with it. But it, that was definitely not the case this year. And there was a lot of overlap between um, the new bear, the Caldecott, and then awards like the, the Coretta Scott King. And you mentioned that um, there was one award that took you a little bit by surprise. It took me a little by surprise, but not not in a bad way in the slightest. Just that I didn't see it coming. Uh, so the Stonewall Book Award, which is for children's and young adult books um, relating to the gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender experience. Uh, the winner this year was uh, Magnus Chase and the Gods of Asgard, The Hammer of Thor by Rick Riordan. And uh, so it's part of his Magnus Chase series. Right. I think it's the second book in the series. And part of the reason I guess it took me by surprise is, you know, we don't get to review a lot of series. So I have not personally had time to read this one. And my understanding from what was said is that there is a, a gender fluid character in the series, which is completely news to me. I had not heard that being buzzed about or talked about. So I think, you know, the other the honor books are ones that perhaps are would be more expected you know books about um you know if i was your girl which is a sort of a transgender ya novel um a book a nonfiction book um called pride by robin robin stevenson just about the, the pride movement things that are more expected i don't think that people were expecting percy jackson author rick riordan to walk away with the the stonewall award this year at least i wasn't right but i will mention he he was actually in the news very recently um he was set to be honored by the texas uh, legislature recently and um, ended up uh, declining to do be so because they're in the process of a uh, sort of bathroom bill that's you know right. perhaps going to work its way uh, through the books, and he decided um, no, thank you. You can you can keep your awards. So he made a lot of headlines for that. So having that and these two things, which are almost certainly unrelated uh, in terms of right. um, which is an interesting thing, and not a book that I I certainly expected to to see take away the top prize for that one. Well, it's certainly going to have uh, help him reach some different audiences, maybe who like you had no idea that character was in there. Mm-hmm. Well, it sounds like a very good list, and uh, hopefully you've had a good time following along with uh, all of the... It, it sounds like just so much to keep up with. There is. I, I think there's something like 19 awards that were, were given on Monday in and, and wow. all sorts of different categories. I mean, we, we've only talked about a handful of them, but you know, for books and translation, um, a variety of lifetime achievement type awards, um, you know, awards specifically given to the um, books that represent the disability experience, things like that. So there really are a, a real range of um, books. But in general, I, I saw very little in the way of negative reactions. People seem to be thrilled about the the sort of both the books, the authors, and the, the types of stories that we're getting uh, recognized this year. So, great. Um, yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much, John. It's always great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. And now a final word from our sponsors. Beyond the headlines, beyond the routine, beyond the book, I'm Chris Keneally, host of Copyright Clearance and his podcast series, Beyond the Book. And I'm Andrew Albany, senior writer at Publishers Weekly. Join us each Friday for a Publishing News Week in Review podcast unlike any other. Learn all the breaking news and catch the best analysis on developments in the book trade, copyright law, and much more. You already know business as usual. Now go Beyond the Book. Listen to the free series and subscribe at beyondthebook.com. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another exciting author interview, and we'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcasts on iHeartRadio and iTunes, and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 